this call is uh, let's being try recorded. That again. Welcome, Welcome to, to the Roy Cooper um, Opportunity Zone update call. Uh, this is the first call of 2019. So thank you all for dialing in. Um, we had a short holiday break, but now we're out back at it. Uh, just to recap kind of where we are, my colleague in the tax department, Layla Vaughn, and myself are on. Layla, can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? Yep. Great. Great. Um, we're going to talk today about uh, some of the comments and uh, an update on where the Opportunity Zone program really is um, in light of the government shutdown and some of the rate packages that have been um, issued and, and will be issued and where that progress is. Um, I guess, and just a bit of housekeeping before we get started. If you have questions, we still have the same email address. It's it's oz at rccblaw.com. That's oz at rccblaw.com. Feel free to shoot us questions during the event or during the call or afterwards, and, and we'll build them into the next program. Um, our next call would be scheduled for February 6th, but uh, Layla and our colleague Jennifer Tintenfoss is going to be on a panel. Um, Layla, do you want to tell the audience a little bit about that? Sure. The panel is going to be on February 6th. If you did not receive an invitation to the panel, please send us an email and we'll make sure that you get that. Um, it will be an in-person program at our friend's Eisner Amper's office in One Logan Square in Center City. Um, and it'll be starting, I believe, at... Um, 8.30 in the morning on February 6th, and it'll go for a couple hours. So we hope to see you and What uh, What are you guys going to be talking about, Leila? Qualified Opportunity Zones. <laughs> um, well, we, it depends if any update happens. So we'll, we'll talk about the current state of things and what's going on in the market. We have... Um, we have someone from Shift Capital joining us, and we have someone from Verde Capital joining us, so that you know we can hear whether um, you know what kind of movement they're seeing, and you know we will also provide a technical overview and have some time for questions as well. That's great, um, and I guess that's a good bridge, right? Because uh, there are some updates as to what's been going on with respect to the program. Um, in light of the government shutdown. Um, Y'all may recall in the audience that the IRS issued an initial set of proposed regulations back uh, at the end of October, um, setting forth a lot of the rules um, or proposed rules about you know filling in the margins of how this program would work and uh, requested comments from the public. Um, they got 145 comments and um, you know these, these comment letters are very, very dense. Uh, they raised issues. I thought I knew this program, but they've raised issues that um, continue to raise issues that, you know, really get detailed and, and raise some uncertainty and, and resolve some uncertainty too, um, or raise some interesting questions. But, you know, there are 145 comment letters. Um, there was supposed to be a hearing on, on the comment letters on Jan January 10th. Um, Treasury you know, except for essential functions, has, has largely um, stopped working in light of the government shutdown. They wound up canceling the hearing and postponing it 
until at least two weeks after they, they get their funding back. So that's a new holding pattern, unfortunately. Um, we can certainly discuss all those issues. And I, again, I think they're interesting, or at least a lot of the issues. Um, but, uh, but we're not going to have resolution on those for quite a while. Um, similarly, they were going to issue the IRS and Treasury a second set of regulations on some of the operational issues of opportunity funds and opportunity zone businesses. And, and that has also been postponed in light of the government shutdown. So unfortunately, at this point, you know, we don't have quite the certainty that we expected to. Um, it's not moving quite as quickly as we expected to. And some of the um, questions in, in the statute and questions in the proposed regulations are, are going to be unresolved for a little while. Um, and we don't know exactly when we'll get better resolution on those points. <clears throat> so that's, that's a bit of a bummer. Um, but, you know, now that there are 145 comment letters, I can't say we read them all, but we've read a handful of kind of the bigger ones. And I think we're going to talk a little bit on this call about, you know, what the issues are that they've raised, how they propose to kind of uh, uh, how commentators propose that the IRS, you know, resolve those favorably or unfavorably to investors. And, you know, what the likelihood of, of any one of those comments actually getting implemented and, and how, you know, how this is likely to shake out. Of course, this is just our prediction, right? We're not we're not the IRS, we're not the law, but um, you know, we, we can read the statute and kind of read the tea leaves as good as anybody. So um, we'll give you our best shot at it. Um, what, what's gonna happen in this program in light of all these comments. <laughs> so I guess, um, Layla, just to kind of start and, and lay it out, what are some of the big themes that you noticed in the comments that, that we read? Well, I, I mean, there are some, Issues that I think, you know, we see multiple comments coming in consistently asking for the same or a similar resolution of an issue that everyone's been talking about, um, you know, especially the big issues that could potentially prevent um, an investor from getting comfort that this is a reasonable investment to make. So, um, you know, examples of that include how the regulations might end up dealing with a refinance and cash out scenario. You know, I think I'm seeing consistently in, in the ones that I've focused on, nobody wants to see that treated as a sale or exchange or otherwise classified as abusive because it's a common practice that predated the QOZ program to have a, you know, developer work on property and what you know when you get to a certain point you can get better debt and you can pull out a lot of the initial cash investment and take that cash and go invest it in uh, you know the next big project and to require the initial cash stay in for that 10-year holding period that we've talked so much about would prevent a lot of developers from uh, the usual way they would function, you know, from from continuing to do that. So it's too much of a system change. And so what I saw was, you know, the ABA comment that uh, we worked on, as well as uh, some of the other comments, um, would ask that that Treasury make it clear, either make it clear that you can do that or at least not issue something saying that that would be abusive or or would trigger a sale or exchange because under normal partnership rules 
that would that's fine as long as the cash taken out after the refinance doesn't exceed the basis, which would have been stepped up for the borrowing. Um, yeah. Other other things generally, you know, a lot of the requests are taxpayer favorable. Although we'll see, especially the New York State Bar Association kind of threw in a few things that made me at least scratch my head as to to why they would um, make the recommendation that they made. Yeah, and just to circle back to that um, a second ago, I, I think you're right that, um, you know, that's a major question and a major investor desire that, that they can pull, you know, refinancing proceeds out without uh, being subject to tax on those refinance proceeds. Um, and, and you and I, right, we were in the audience maybe uh, three weeks ago or so where um, somebody who has already put together an opportunity fund and started a development project basically said, you know, I, I plan on doing this. Um, and was pretty confident that it would work. That it would work, and unfortunately, you know, the tax lawyer on the panel had to kind of wince a little bit. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, no, I think people are certainly, pl you know, planning on doing that, and there is a consensus in the comment letters, and it doesn't make a lot of sense for the treasury to kind of prevent people from doing that. Um, right. The advice I've been giving, um, you know, taxpayers is, I don't think, I don't think anybody would object if, you know, somebody. Uh, were to um, say put you know 30% equity and 70% debt into an opportunity fund and use you know 100% of the proceeds to go develop opportunity fund property. So if they use you know 100% equity and then after it becomes financeable, you know put 70% debt on the property, you kind of get to the same place. Um, so it doesn't sound abusive or problematic to me. Um, but you know again it's 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 possible i suppose that that treasury um disregards the comments or or finds it for whatever reason outside of their statutory authority to to give taxpayers that relief but but i i personally don't don't think that that's very likely there's such a consensus and a need for this and a clamoring um for the program to really work right because you know investors aren't going to want 100% equity tied up they're going to want to leverage things up they're going to want to refinance um, to make that 10-year hold kind of workable. Um, one other kind of, I guess, you know, repeated theme that I saw in the comment letters was really a, a desire for more guidance on operating businesses, right? So, so we know that the Opportunity Zone program, you know, at least the statute, is not limited to real estate. It works for, um, you know, real estate investments or really any active business you know, as long as you meet some of those requirements, an active business um, located in, in, an, in an opportunity zone where, you know, more than 70%, if it's an opportunity zone uh, uh, business in a subsidiary, more than 70% of its tangible property is used in the in the zone. And, you know, a lot of it's intangible or substantially all it's intangible property in an active business and an active gross income and all those tests. Um, but, you know, the first round of uh, proposed regulations didn't really touch on how to apply those rules in um, in the context of an operating business compared to real estate, where obviously you know you build a building, it ain't going to move; it's going to be in that zone. So you see, you know, a lot of questions around that, and a lot of um, I think positive suggestions that kind of uh, reflect the way you know these businesses are likely to grow. Right. You know, um, if you put a manufacturing plant in an opportunity zone and it ships to customers outside the zone, you know, that tangible property should probably qualify 
um, you know, regardless of the fact that, you know, it's going to be located outside the zone, even if it's some, some kind of, you know, um, uh, title passes upon shipping or something like that or upon receipt, um, you know, because really is that, that taxpayer is really investing in the zone. Um, another area related to that that I, I saw, you know, kind of repeatedly questioned is, um, you know, how you how you look at original use or um, substantial improvement with respect to, you know, an acquisition of operating assets, right? If you buy a business. That was my comment. Yeah, well, maybe you should step in because you're going to talk about it a lot more authoritatively than no, I No, I want to hear I want to hear your take on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the program doesn't really work, right? If, you know, if you look at those types of assets. So, so I guess just to step back, the scenario is, you know, to have a good opportunity zone uh, asset or a good opportunity zone business property, you know, it needs to either be originally used or substantially improved within the zone, right? And and acquired by purchase after 2017. So, you know, if you buy a business, right, and you're you're planning on investing in the zone to improve that business, to grow it, to expand it, um, the question becomes, you know, you just bought a bunch of assets. Some of those might be tangible property that already exist. Um, and how do you, you know, measure original use or substantial improvement when, when you're talking about, you know, a car or uh, manufacturing equipment or inventory? Um, kind of the repeated comment that you see, which to my mind makes a lot of sense, and again, it's kind of consistent with the policy that um, Treasury is trying to encourage uh, investment and, and Congress is trying to encourage investment in these zones, is you should really look at it in the aggregate. Um, because, you know, you can't, I mean, it's just not commercially practical to improve, you know, um, uh, manufacturing equipment that's already been placed in service or inventory that's already, you know, available for sale. But it is possible. And, you know, part of and consistent with growing a business like that to, you know, double the amount of inventory, right, as the business grows or to invest in more manufacturing equipment as the business grows. So if you look at it in the aggregate, right, um, you know, then then those quantifiable tests, all those assets that, that would otherwise not be originally used and you don't plan on substantially improving that that would be bad assets. If you look at it in the aggregate, they kind of become good assets. Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. I don't know. What do you think? I, I agree. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and in the in the context of real estate, it it applies as well. So so the ABA comments that we worked on were, I mean, they were specific to real estate because they were the real estate tax section. Although this one crossed over, but you could consider, you know, contiguous tracts of land, and you you know, should you have to have an improvement on each parcel or can you do something, you know, that substantially improves one and, and maybe the next one supports that parcel. So consider like an apartment building that has um, a playground next door to it. The playground is on a separate parcel of land um, that should be, you know, looked at in the aggregate the playground shouldn't be a bad asset. Um, or even if you look at the, the idea of a building having multiple components, especially if we're talking about, you know, something that has equipment or um, fixtures that are within the building that are functional, you know, 
to the operation of either the building or or the manufacturing business that's in it to try to have to segregate out each asset and improve an asset that doesn't make economic sense to improve would not benefit anyone and the idea behind the program is to you know put money you know invest money into these communities but there's no benefit to having forcing that money to be invested unwisely yeah yeah and then i guess the the flip side of that which which some of these letters start to get into is you know if you start kind of aggregating um you might you know it's the example with a hot dog stand on a on a big plot of land bank right where you buy you know a bunch of property you improve a little bit of it um and if you look at it in the aggregate maybe you improve enough to meet substantial improvements somehow but you haven't really um done a lot with respect to the overall asset that you've acquired to to really you know make hay and and grow um employment opportunities and other investment opportunities in the zone but you know i think that's probably rare and and i'm sure treasury is is good at creating you know anti abuse type rules or safe harbors or or you know disqualifier rules and stuff like that to you know really weed out that rare scenario um and let you know so that was actually do... more in response to the so the revenue ruling provided that if you have an improvement on land you don't have to substantially improve the whole value of the land you as we talked about on a prior call you you can improve just the the building on the land and this was designed this comment that a hot dog stand on a large parcel of land was designed to focus on the fact that it should really only be the land that's kind of that's relevant that's associated with that structure to to you know i guess it's not a taxpayer favorable suggestion but it's really you know a fair one um, but I, yeah. I think I viewed that as we were writing it as separate from the concepts of aggregation, although related in the sense that we're talking about the, you know, substantial use, uh, substantial improvement and original use tests there. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right about that. that that's a good point. Um, I guess one issue really related to more, you know, pure funds that are opportunity funds rather than kind of private investments that are opportunity funds. Um, the New York State Bar Association commented on, uh, focused on, on you know, how funds practically operate a little bit and, and raised some interesting issues that could be um, relevant to some of our uh, fund listeners or, or sponsors of funds. Um, one is, you know, the disguised sale rules, right? So, so fund typically, you know, might have an initial closing and it might have a rolling closing over the ensuing 12 months or 18 months or whatever. And, um, you know, the fund will say to early investors to induce them to come in early. Look, if somebody comes in late, you know, we'll turn around uh, with the, the dilution will be distributed to you to kind of, you know, even out your capital accounts and you'll get paid interest. Um, and. In most circumstances, that's a disguise sale, right? Because a disguise sale under the tax law includes when you know one taxpayer makes or one investor makes a contribution into a fund, and and simultaneously or close in time, um, another taxpayer gets a distribution out of that fund. You know, a disguise sale rule say you know economically that looks a lot like the the distributee sold some of their partnership interest to the uh, to the buyer um, to the to the contributor. Um, 
And, you know, that, that makes sense in most contexts. The problem is with respect to opportunity funds, you know, you got to hold your equity for 10 years, right? So, uh, so what the New York State Bar Association suggested, you know, was, was simple, kind of, you know, recognizing that pretty common structure to just turn off, uh, the disguised sale rules, um, for, for partnership, you know, for fund catch-ups like that. And I think, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I also think it's, you know, certainly within Treasury's, uh, authority because the disguised sale rules are, are mostly regulatory. Um, so that'd be interesting. Um, and then, and then relatedly, uh, the New York state bar, you know, suggested that treasury allow, you know, things like aggregator and feeder vehicles, which to me, um, sounds like, uh, a fund coming in. Um, well, it could sound like a couple of things. I mean, it could sound like a classic feeder in, you know, a typical fund structure that, uh, tax exempts and offshore investors would come into. Um, and there, I guess there's not, I, I wouldn't see a real problem there because, you know, that, that, um, feeder vehicle is just like any other taxpayer. Um, I guess the question would be, you know, if the capital gains are, um, incurred by, you know, the top tier investor and then contributed into the feeder fund, which contributes it into, you know, the opportunity fund. Um, you know, there's the statutory rule, right, that says you can't start an opportunity fund um, to invest in another opportunity fund. And then, you know, so that's that that cuts you off kind of from treating, you know, the feeder as an opportunity fund. But on the other hand, you know, the taxpayer who incurred the capital gain wouldn't be making the investment there, right? So it would be, you know, a separate kind of C-corp below the uh, the taxpayer who made the capital gain or owned by the taxpayer who made the capital gain. So I think that would be really helpful. Um, and that would help, you know, a lot of kind of funds of funds start to pop up and it would help, you know, uh, other investors who are used to coming in through feeders and blockers and those sort of things get involved. Um, I, I don't know that they can really do that. I don't know that they can really do that under the terms of the statute. Um, if, if they could, I which I, I agree that they probably can't, um, that would also help someone who's up against the 180 days and hasn't found a fund, or potentially, I, I'm not sure how far it would reach, but it could potentially help someone who puts their money into an opportunity fund and then doesn't invest, you know, doesn't doesn't really have a plan for what that fund does and really wants to invest in another fund and essentially just buy themselves some time. Yeah. Yeah, no, right. we get that a lot. That's that's a very good point. Um, we get that a lot. And up to now, we've been telling clients, look, if you want to do that, that's a great idea, but you're going to have to, um, you know, use the the opportunity fund that you create to kind of acquire, you know, direct interest in a joint venture or, or real estate directly rather than invest in an opportunity fund down the road. Um, well, we only have a couple more minutes. I don't know if there's any other kind of major comments that you wanted to touch on. Or, or anything you found really interesting that you want to make sure that we mention? Um, well, I, I mean, there are there are a lot of good comments, especially from the ABA letter. <laughs> I guess you know one one that I like to focus on for the practicality of how cash goes in and is used by an opportunity fund is the working capital safe harbor. So. Um, a safe harbor was provided in the proposed regulations that allowed um, 
30 months of working capital to be held within a joint venture, um, so that lower tier entity that the Qualified Opportunity Fund invests in, which otherwise would have been prohibited um, by, you know, cash would have been prohibited by a 5% limitation on financial assets. The, um, the Qualified Opportunity Fund itself doesn't get the benefit of the safe harbor. And the reason for that, as we've discussed before, is because the Qualified Opportunity Fund has a different test it has to meet that is 90% of its assets being held, now being Qualified Opportunity Zone business property. And that is, you know, not subject to the 5% limitation, but there's effectively a 10% limitation on other assets that the fund can hold. So one of the comments that we provided was that there should really be a way to extend that safe harbor that allows um, working capital to be treated um, as, as a good asset at the joint venture level, extend that to the fund level as well so that a fund is not forced into a structure it might not otherwise use for you know, economic and business structuring reasons. Another yeah, or or have a footfall, right? Which we see from time to time. Um, where, or what? You know, or have a footfall. You know, where yeah. a fund really has done everything economically to comply with the statute, but you know, wasn't aware uh, or well advised on you know the structuring. So they've got cash at at the fund level that that disqualifies them when you know when uh, they would otherwise get opportunity funds, opportunity fund All benefits. Right. Yeah. And the other the other concern that we had expressed in this comment letter was that um, you know the, the time frame isn't really appropriate. I mean, we we have to extend it to I think 31 months to match the substantial improvement time frame, and then we also asked for a, uh, the ability to delay the start time of that safe harbor if you have construction delays. So if you're trying to get permits in place and that takes you a year to do, that shouldn't throw you out of the safe harbor. Um, and we also recognize that there's a potential to have that take even longer to, to get started for a variety of reasons. So we suggested that that be able to be extended to, you know, an additional 24 months, not to, you know, an additional 12-month period so that you could have 24 months before your 31-month period would start. Yeah, and and I think it it might have been the New York State Bar, or the ABA. Um, it must have been the New York State Bar it dealt with the same issue on the back end, right? Where you know the thirty month working capital exception would kind of be extended, um, given you know reasonable construction delays that were not really caused by uh, the opportunity fund sponsor. Um, right. So I I think you're right. You know, one way or the other, you know, relief is going to be needed there because people are going to be weary. Of of a pretty sure. um, short deadline, um, and I think you know I and think the government's kind of signaled a, that they're knowledgeable and interested in working with you know investors to to make these real estate projects feasible. Right, and and recognizing also though that the, the safe harbor is exactly that it's a safe harbor. It doesn't mean that your working capital isn't good working capital just because you don't meet it, but people tend to put a lot of stock into falling squarely within a safe harbor so that they can get that 
comfort that they will qualify rather than having to rely on the facts and circumstances. And just one more point on that um, working capital, because you were talking earlier about operating businesses and, and the need to make sure that the regulations give adequate guidance for operating businesses. We also suggested putting in a safe harbor for working capital that you know is needed for operations of a, a business. So not yeah. just the primary working capital safe harbor at this point is for construction. And yeah. that's just not and, enough and, for an operating and you can see, you know, an operating business, their uh, balance sheet is going to, you know, drastically um, change just, you know, based on when they collect their AR, you know, when when they expend their working capital, all that stuff. So, you know, you really don't want the, the Treasury really ought not to create footfalls for companies that um, are doing everything to invest in the zone, but happen to have a bad balance sheet, you know, on June 30th, whereas they would have a good balance sheet on July 1st or something like that. Um, so I think that's an important point, too, I think. Anything about about the balance sheet testing? Uh, I would love to, but maybe we should save it for a future call. We ran a little bit late. Um, well, okay, sure. Um, so <laughs> the issue that pops up that, yeah, it was easily convinced. Um, the issue that pops up there is, you know, again, to, to become a good opportunity fund, uh, more than 90%, the average of two dates between, you know, June 30th and the end of the fund's tax year um, on both of those dates, the average of its assets need to be more than 90% good assets, which, you know, qualified opportunities on business property and, and equity interest and qualified opportunities on businesses. <laughs> so the proposed regs included a rule that said, well, if you have financial statements, you're going to measure the value of your assets for that 90% test based on your financial statements. And if you don't have financial statements, it's going to be cost, which was a little vague. Um, so on our section of the ABA comment letter, you know, we, we kind of thought about that and took issue with, um, you know, reliance on financial statements just because gap is so different um, and can lead to results that are really not consistent with the purpose of the statute um, and and has, you know, some valuations and fluctuations that uh, are not really appropriate. So if you think about it, um, you know, GAAP, there's there's a renewal rule this year, actually, where under GAAP, all leases need to be capitalized, whether they're operating leases or capital leases. That's going to create a lot of confusion in the context of an operating business um, or, or a real estate, you know, investment um, in, for for managing its balance sheet. It, it really makes more sense, I think, from, from our perspective to, you know, measure um, cost on day one. Um, subject to, you know, straight line depreciation over the lifespan of a business so that opportunity funds that really are doing everything again to kind of invest in the invest in these zones um, have certainty, right? They they put together a CapEx plan, you know, a business plan um, that clearly shows that, you know, their assets are invested in qualified property. They really shouldn't be, you know, subject to things that arise in gap like valuation issues. Um, fluctuations in value, you know, um, goodwill impairment, all that weird stuff um, that would that would throw them out of compliance, even though they've, you know, re again, really done everything to invest in the zone and, and are creating value in the zone. So that was our comment um, to just, you know, shift away from uh, reliance on valuation statement and really go back to cost. And there are some interesting kind of ancillary issues that do pop up, you know, what's cost in the context of a capital contribution 
um, compared to you know an outright purchase where we probably just know cost is is the purchase price. Um, and we said it should, you know, really ought to be the fair market value at the time of the contribution because that's kind of the uh, the value um, received by the fund, and you know, the equity issuance that that the fund is paying the contributor with is is worth that much. Um, and you know, the tax law fortunately includes provisions in, in the partnership rules and 704C that you know accommodate that kind of stuff, um, and you know. Uh, square the economics with the tax results and allow um, a, a fund, you know, or a partnership to to really, um, you know, allocate income and, and capital accounts and all that stuff in a way that makes logical sense. So the tax law is already kind of equipped for that, and and you know, uh, again, it allows a fund to get certainty based on its capex plan that it's going to have, you know, 90% good assets throughout throughout its life. Um, so. Yeah, that, we we thought that was an interesting issue, and I was happy to comment on it. Um, it looks like there aren't any questions. We did run a little bit late just because uh, we were so enamored by all these comments. We really just did scratch the surface. There's 145 of these comment letters, and, and they all raise very, very good issues. Um, I can't say I read them all. I only have like 144. I don't know about you, Leela. Um, <laughs> so, uh, again, please... Um, Please attend uh, Layla and our colleague Jen and some uh, other firms are putting on a, a panel on February 6th. Um, we won't have a call that day and uh, we'll pick back up the, the third Wednesday of February and perhaps you know the government will be working again and we'll have some more um, we'll have some more progress and, and some more investor certainty and news for, for y'all. So thanks all for dialing in. Thank you Layla for participating again and we'll talk to you soon.